Hey, uh, we're going to jump in today. Um, we're going to continue on uh, in our preaching series. We've been going through the book of Revelation, um, and it's been getting spicier. It started off really lovely with just a message to the churches, and that was great. Um, last week, we talked about women and dragons, and that was uh, kind of crazy. So today, um, before we read the text together, um, I want to I talk something through with you that will be really helpful in understanding it when we read it. And it's a concept that we don't normally connect the Bible with, which is um, the idea of hopefully this clicker is working. If not, maybe, there we go. Satire. Anyone, when they read the Bible, think, nice, this is a good satirical book. It's not normally how we approach the Bible, right? So now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with satire, it's when you write something and you say something, but you don't really mean what you say, you mean what behind what you say. Look, here's some like satirical headlines from different news stories. Um, oh yeah, here we go. Um, see if you can read this. It says, a cunning swimmer outwits, outwits thieves by concealing wallet and phone in shoes. <laughs> that just made me really happy. Like, you ever, anyone else ever do that when you go swimming at the beach and you have your stuff and you're like, well, I can't just leave it out in the open because someone's gonna steal it. So what do we do? We hide it in our jumper or in our shoes, and we think, that'll be safe. But it's poking fun on the fact that we all do this. So if someone's going to steal your stuff, they're just going to take it all anyway. Um, uh, another one that's quite good. Uh, here it says, otherwise, oopsie, let's go back one. Oop. Let's try going back one. Here we go. Otherwise, intelligent man, man believes he's good at betting on sport. <laughs> I get it? See? Otherwise, intelligent man has one lapse of judgment. Uh, here's another one. Uh, here's a church-related one that we saw. Uh, God politely informs worship leader he heard the bridge the first time. <laughs> yeah, now we're getting into it. Uh, here's another one. Uh, pastor silently judges congregants who left their Bibles at church all week. <laughs> you get it, eh? You get what satire is doing. You know implicitly when we read these, we know they aren't trying to tell us that a pastor actually got angry at a congregation. What's it doing? It's poking fun at pastors who are like, oh, I know who's not reading the Bibles this week because I have it here, and it makes fun of church culture. Um, but good satire, the best satire is often political, isn't it? Like, here's, um, here's, some, here's some good political satire. It's American-based because the world revolves around America, I guess, but um, look at this, so the onion. Um, no way to prevent this, says only nation where this regularly happens. Um, <laughs> It's poking fun at mass shootings. American re Republicans will often say, there's no way we can change this, and America's the only nation in the world that has such regular mass shootings. Poking fun at it, right? Um, or here's this last one. Um, Hillary Clinton pleasantly surprised after finding old $20,000 donation check in her coat pocket. <laughs> right? So we get what's happening here. Hey, when you read that, you know what's happening. It's making fun of Hillary because she's outdated and she's rich, trying to appeal to common people, but her world revolves around $20,000 donation checks that she forgot in her wallet, the same way we forget like a one pound coin. So why this is interesting is that we often don't think about the Bible doing this, but it does. So if you've read the prophets, anytime the prophets begin ranting and railing against different leaders or different rulers, they often use satire. They characterize rulers with funny faces or weird abilities or over-exaggerated characteristics to mock the horrible injustices that they're doing. And so when we read Revelation, I want you to put your satire lenses on, because what you're gonna find is John is engaging in satire here. 
He's exaggerating things, and he's poking fun at the thing behind the thing. Does that make sense? Everyone get satire? All right. Um, so let's take a listen to the text for today. Let's get the audio going up. Revelation chapter 13. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns and on each head, a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight 
Calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is six, six, six. Oh boy. Oh boy. You know, when I started this uh, idea of doing Revelation, I thought, this will be fun. This will be great. This week I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? We're getting into it, guys. This is, I mean, even if you don't know much about Christianity, some, most people know the, this verse, A. We don't know exactly what it means, but we know 666 is bad and the end of the world is about to come, right? That's like the extent of our knowledge. Whew. You guys ready? You guys ready? All right. This week was fascinating for me as I was doing research into these texts and going through it, and I was looking at, okay, let's figure this out. 666, this beast, this antichrist, this is language that the church has used throughout the ages. I'm just going to figure it out. I'll start there, and I'll figure it out. So I'm going to go back through history and figure out what they thought, and do you know what's fascinating is that throughout history, this has been one of the church's favorite texts as well, um, because church leaders have managed to find who the Antichrist was pretty much at every stage of history. At every stage of history, there was a new Antichrist. So um, here's this first one. Um, let's try this. Here we go. I'm going to show you some of their paintings too, because they're really rad. I really like them. Um, up here, you have two different popes that each made some paintings so I don't know if you knew this, but at one point in time in Christian history, there are two popes. The first pope didn't like the second person, so they made a new pope, and it was really awkward and really confusing. And so each pope commissions artists to call the other pope the Antichrist, the beast. So over here, uh, this is Pope John Paul, um, who was one of the popes, and he's now the beast, and he's sticking a sword into the lamb, which is sad. Uh, over there, this is the propaganda against Nicholas V, the anti-pope, the other pope, and he's got the two beasts giving him a head massage um, with an awkward crown. So at this point, they thought it was the popes. This was about the 1300s. This is when they thought it was the popes. Um, fast forward a couple hundred years, and we still think that it was some different people. Um, let's see here. Oh, I like this one. That pope's got a big old nose. Um, so this was during Martin Luther's time. Um, this is Protestants began showing up. So you had Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. And Protestants began looking at Revelation being like, well, who's 666? Who's the beast? It's the Pope. So here is the Pope being played like a bagpipe <laughs> by the beast. Um, and over here, you have um, what's called like the people who went through and did indulgences. So at this point in church history, it was really nasty and really corrupt. Um, basically, they had this idea of Purgatory, which wasn't heaven, it was hell. It was this kind of really awful waiting place. And almost everybody got stuck there until they were fully holy to go to heaven or until they were condemned to hell. Unpleasant. And so the Catholic Church needed to raise some money for St. Peter's Basilica. So it sent people throughout Europe with indulgences. And the deal was, if you gave money and bought an indulgence for your loved one, it would immediately take them out of purgatory and put them into heaven. Horrible. Hey, this is the reason... In case you didn't know the backstory, why Martin Luther did his 95 Thesis on the wall, it was because the Catholic Church was literally selling tickets to heaven to raise money for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So if you've ever been to St. Peter's Basilica, that was partly funded by poor people trying to get their relatives out of purgatory. 
Yay, Christianity. Um, so obviously, he's the beast. But the Catholics weren't going to take this lying down. And Chris, I know you got some Catholic backgrounds, so we're going to give you a shot in here too. The Catholics shot back at Luther. Um, Here's their Luther propaganda. It's kind of hard to see, but over here you have Luther, and he literally has seven heads. So you have him as like a doctor, an author, a unfaithful woman, a beast. And then this head on the far right side is Barabbas. Why Barabbas was there, I don't know. Maybe they ran out of ideas and thought, Barabbas seems like a bad guy. We'll call Luther that. Um, so here, Luther was the seven-headed beast. He was the 666 Antichrist. And um, over here, this is him as Hercules bludgeoning the faithful with a club, which actually isn't that inaccurate. Martin Luther was a very foul-mouthed person who was very rude. If you're ever bored one day, go into Google and type Luther insult generator and you push enter and it will pull from Luther's writings actual insults he wrote. They're hilarious. You can spend half an hour just reading his foul-mouthed insults. Father of our faith. Um, so at every point in history we've thought it, and look, in modern times, if we fast forward to now, uh, look, you've probably heard that the Antichrist is both Obama and Trump. Um, if there's one characteristic truth about Antichrist writings, that have come around since the 1970s, somehow they're all revolved around America. You may not have noticed, America's either the savior or the beast, and it usually depends on which political party's in power at the time of the writing of that note. So, look, throughout history, we've gone to the end, and what the church has done is we've looked around our world and thought, who's the baddest person I can find? That must be the person's revelations talking about. What I want us to do is a different approach. We're not gonna try and just look for the bad person and ascribe 666 or antichrist language to him because it's probably not helpful. What we're gonna do is what we've been doing this entire time in Revelation, which is asking the question, what did this mean for the seven churches who heard it? Because think, if the antichrist was just about Russia or America, then it had absolutely no relevance for the first 2,000 years of church history. And in every other scriptural book, whether it's Galatians or Ephesians, or Psalms or Proverbs, what we always do is we read it, we think, what did this mean for the people who first heard it? And once we understood what they would have understood, then we understand what it means for us. So we're gonna try and do that today, and hopefully this won't be too weird. No promises. Um, so we're just gonna try and start at the beginning and make our way through. All right. Revelation 1 and 2. So a dragon stood on the shore of the she... Shore of the she... Seashore. Sally sells seashores, but nope. Uh, the dragon stood by the water, right? And if you remember last week's context, we had the story of this dragon and this woman. And what Revelation was doing is it was reframing all of life in the context of the story of the gospel. This dragon represents this great enemy of God. You can call him Satan. You can call him Leviathan. You can call him evil. Whatever name you want to ascribe to him, there is this force of chaos and evil that has been at odds with God's good creation. And last week's story told us that Jesus has defeated that force of evil. Jesus reigns and rules in heaven, but that beast, that dragon, roams around earth, lashing out against God's creation because he knows his time is short. So this dragon now stands on the sea and he calls out this beast. I saw a beast coming out. It had 10 horns, seven heads with 10 crowns on its horns, and each head had a blasphemous name. The beast I saw remembered, resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast its power and the, its throne and its great authority. Now, if you've been following on, 
Remember, numbers aren't trying to tell us how many of something. It's trying to tell us what kind of thing it is. So seven heads, like the dragon last week, this is a complete. Seven is this number of completion. So this is a serious foe. This is a formidable opponent. Now the 10 horns and the different leopards and everything, that actually is referencing another piece of scripture. Does anyone know what it is? I didn't because I had to research it. I just want to see if any of you are smarter than me. Good, I feel validated. Um, uh, this is actually referencing a story in Daniel. So Daniel, what you'll find here in Daniel chapter 7, it's hard to see because I had to kind of pack it in, but in Daniel 7, he gets these visions of these four beasts. I, Daniel, saw in my vision four great beasts that came up out of the sea, a different one from one another. The first one was like a lion and had eagle's wings, and then another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. After this, as I watched, another appeared like a leopard, and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It was different from all the beasts that preceded it. It had ten horns, um, and, it was, and I was considering the horns when another one appeared. They, were, they had eyes like a horn, and this mouth was speaking arrogantly. See the connections between the two? So in Daniel, you have these four different animals with horns. Huh? Four animals. Four beasts. Now in Revelation, he takes the same idea, but rather than it being four different animals, he combines it into one. So what Daniel was doing in his vision is Daniel was actually challenging Israel about different empires that were on the way. Each one of those beasts represent a different empire. The, the lion was Babylon, and then you had the Medes, and then you had the Persians, and then you had the Greeks. And in the story of Israel, for Daniel's time, those were the people who conquered Israel. Babylonians, Medes, Persians, and Greeks. And the Greeks were the most terrifying because they actually desecrated the temple, and it was horrible. So when we're trying to figure out what Revelation is saying here, he's pulling back to Daniel saying, hey, do you remember the story about these empires? Remember how we called them different beasts? What Revelation is doing is saying, look, for Daniel, they were each a different kingdom. In this beast, they're all wrapped up into one. It has all those attributes combined into one to say, the enemy that we face is empires themselves. We're thinking about empires as empires. So for their context, it would have been Rome, wouldn't it? Who's the most terrifying beast that ruled the world at their time? Rome. And so what, Dan what Revelation is doing is it's combining Daniel and it's making you think about imperial threats, right? So then he goes on. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshiped the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast. And they also worshiped the beast and asked who is like the beast, who can wage war against it. So what's happening here, again, is he's using satire. And he's doing satire on a specific story, right? So at this time, this revelation is probably written around 90 AD. Um, before Revelation was written, there was a lovely man who looked like this. Anyone ever heard of Nero? He was lovely, wasn't he? Anyone who knows anything about Nero just hears, he was just the loveliest of men. Now, quite the opposite. In terms of Roman history, Nero was like the worst of the worst. There were so many rumors about stuff that was messed up about him. So he, there were horrible rumors about him being like, having a weird, perverted relationship with his mom, and that went around the country, and everyone knew Nero was like, 
You know, like, and on top of that, he was kind of crazy. He, there were rumors about him being insane. So there was a fire in Rome and it swept across the Roman city and destroyed so much of it. And it was terrifying and it was really hard for the Roman city. And to deal with that, people began looking around and being like, how did this fire start? And this rumor started that it was actually Nero who'd started the fire himself. Now, different people disagreed about why he started it. Some say he started it just because he was crazy and he wanted to see the world burn while he was alive. Other people said, actually, he wants to rebuild all of Rome in his image. And uh, so he, built, he burned it to the ground to build it up fresh again. So he was known as dangerous. He was corrupt. He was foul. He was gross. And when he, um, particularly for the Christian church, he was also sadistic. Um, when these rumors spread about him lighting the fires in Rome, he needed a scapegoat. And the easiest scapegoat he could pick was the Christian community. And so there are records of Nero, um, in order to shift blame from himself to the Christian, cause, called Christians the great cause of the fire and the plague. And to punish them, he would regularly sew them up in animal skins and cast them out into the uh, Colosseum to be torn apart. Or he would pick up people and literally cover them in wax, nail them to posts in his garden, and use them as torches at night while he would walk down the palisades admiring his gardens. Like, he's a horrible, sadistic, nasty person. And when he died, um, history says that he committed suicide, took a knife to his own throat. It's a really uplifting sermon so far, right, guys? Yay! Um, but there was a rumor that spread because not many people saw his body. And so there was this rumor amongst Rome that actually Nero wasn't dead. He was hiding in one of the regions of the empire and he was gonna come back. That he was wounded on his head, but Nero was going to come alive again. He was going to resurrect again. And can you hear some of this language in Revelation? The heads of this beast, remember the beast makes us think of empire, one of the heads of it had a wound. And we thought it was gone, but it was actually going to come back. John's referencing this whole Nero story. And he's taking the Roman Empire and he's saying, look, the head of the beast, the person you love so much that actually from which all this beast gains its power, the head of that beast is Nero. Like there were much better emperors in Roman history. When we glorify Roman emperors, we think of Augustus. He was great. Julius Caesar, he kind of got the whole thing started. Even Domitian was pretty all right. But even Romans looked at Nero and were like, ah, he's kind of the worst. And what John is doing is he's painting Rome and he's painting Nero in their most satirical, exaggerated light. He's grabbing all of the most terrifying things about Rome and combining them into this nasty picture of a beast. And then he talks about what that beast is like. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. They worshiped the dragon. They worshiped the great source of evil because of the strength of the beast. And they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast and who can wage war against it? The other thing John is doing is he's putting up this contrast between the way of God and the way of the dragon. So in Revelation, you have God the Father, and then you have the Son, who is the lamb, and then you have the witnesses on earth. Here in Revelation, we have the dragon, and then we get the beast of the sea who's contrasted with the lamb, the lamb who was slain, who came back, 
the beast who had the horn that was slain and came back. Do you see how he's pulling up these contrasting images? So it goes on to say, hopefully... So the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. Remember, 42 months, how many years is that? Three and a half. Oh, I'm so proud of you guys. Three and a half years. And three and a half is half of seven. So if seven is a perfect, unending, eternal time, three and a half is a limited time. So the beast has power, Rome has power, the empire has power for a limited amount of time will not last forever. It opens its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Again, hear the contrast. The lamb purchased people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And the lamb got them by laying down his life for them. The beast got them with power with military conquest, and with might. And, it was, uh, and all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. So what John is doing here, again, remember, some of the churches in Rome, and or some of the churches in Asia were actually doing pretty okay. Laodicea and Philadelphia were pretty like, they're doing all right. They weren't poor. In Roman society, they were actually doing really good. You had a lot of wealthy Christians who were thriving in the Roman empirical system. And so if you went to Laodicea and asked them, like, hey, how's life in the empire? They'd have been like, that's pretty good. Rome's pretty good. I got nothing really to complain about. Um, they don't push us too much. I mean, I got to offer some sacrifices and stuff to, to Caesar, but it's no big deal. It's actually pretty great. What John is doing is he's using satire. He's taking all the things that they kind of know and he's putting them in this horrible image so that even the church of Laodicea, when they look at this beast who kind of carries this image of empire in Rome, everybody looks at that beast and is like, L, right? Like when you read that, you're like, you know, you know, feel a little bit dirty. And Laodicea, who's been making their money off the empire, has to feel like, where's my money been coming from, right? So then it goes on to say this warning, whoever has ears, let them hear. This is a message for the churches. The letters to the seven churches had that phrase all the time. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they'll be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Again, one of the constant messages of Revelation to the Christians is hold fast. You'll be resurrected. Christ has won the day. But in your day-to-day -day life, you may succumb to this beast. But take heart, I have overcome. And on the day that Christ returns, you will be given life again. So it's this message again to hold fast. So that first beast, beast of the sea, let's recap. It has images of empire. Daniel makes us think of different empires. And now John connects it with the Nero story, which makes you think about the very worst that the Roman Empire had to offer. And John says, when you look at the Roman Empire around you, what you're actually seeing is a great beast that gains its power from the dragon. It's an encouraging message for the Laodicean church, isn't it? Cool. My whole way of life is built on a lie. So that's the first half. Then John moves on to the second beast, right? 
And so now the second beast coming. He comes out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and it made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. Now remember, Revelation, you have God the Father, the Lamb, and the church, who are the witnesses. Now you have the dragon, the beast of the sea, who has the power of the dragon, and now the beast of the land, who points people to the beast of the sea. You see how it's comparing these two images? It's like the unholy trinity of Revelation, right? And so it goes on to say, this second beast performed great signs, even, ca even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in the full view of God's people. Now, why does this thing get to, why fire? That can be weird. Does anyone remember the last person who called down fire in the book of Revelation? Does anyone remember? There are these two prophets. Yeah, these two prophets, these two witnesses that were coming to point to the lamb, and these two witnesses represented the church. And so again, this beast is parodying. It's like a bad take, a blaspheme on the original, which is God's people pointing to the lamb. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Now, to understand this next bit, has anyone ever heard of the imperial cult? So, all right, picture this. You're a Roman emperor, and you are spreading your empire over the world, right? In Italy, you got it locked down. You go over to Greece, you got that thing locked down. But now you're reaching up into Spain, and man, people are different there. And you're actually reaching further east. You're going into Asia. You're going to Turkey. You're going into Israel and Palestine. And they were always a troublesome people that never liked anything you said. And the further your emperor, empire grows, the harder it is to maintain control on this empire, right? Because people over there don't like you. You're not close to them. They want to fight rebellions. So how do you maintain control over the far reaches of the empire. The Romans decided, I have a great idea. The world was religious, right? It's not like modern day where faith and science are separate. Back then, everything was intertwined. Faith, religion, politics, it was all one thing. And so what they decided to do is in the East, particularly in Asia where these churches were, they built what were called imperial cults. They were temples literally dedicated to the emperor and to the Roman Empire, where you would go and worship them in the same way you would worship Zeus, in the same way you would worship uh, Aphrodite, all the other gods, you would go to the empire and offer praises to Caesar. And this imperial cult began to work its way into the very center of society. So Rome liked it because it meant that people were listening to the Roman narrative and saying, okay, yeah, Caesar's okay. But the wealthy people of these cities the wealthy people of Laodicea also thought, this is a pretty good idea. Because if you've got a really, really good cult running in your city that's like regularly sending praise back to Rome, you're going to get some kickbacks from the Roman Empire, won't you? Because you're a good, faithful city. So all the local aristocrats were the priests. The wealthy people of the city were the officiants of this imperial cult. And this imperial cult became central to the way all these cities worked. Honestly, it's crazy. But like anytime there was a feast, they would gather together at the imperial cult and they would offer praises to Caesar. Thank God for Caesar 
Lord and Savior of the earth, who has brought peace to all things and has brought peace to our city. May he grant us with blessings as we feast on this today. Whenever there were games, they went to the imperial cult. Whenever new trade guilds started, they would go to the imperial cult. And they have like, it was crazy what they did. Honestly, check this out. Here's images. Over here you have Augustus being crowned as a god by Nike, the god of victory. The emperor was crowned um, over here by Roman representatives. And everywhere in the city they told stories about the cult, about the great god of the empire. And so when you go back to Revelation and you see this beast that is setting up an image on behalf of the beast of the sea so that people came and worshipped it and ascribed glory to the great beast, what are we seeing? It's this picture of the imperial cult. It's an incredibly satirical take on the imperial cult. Steve Friesen, he says, look, imperial cult mythology and ritual, it attempted to persuade its audience to identify with the figures crowning the emperor, thereby supporting the per 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 perpetuation, thank you, of the imperial social system. Revelation, on the other hand, was an effort to persuade its audiences to perceive themselves not as the Romans granting victory to the gods, but the church to see themselves as the captives in the sculpture, as the ones oppressed by the great beast, as victims of Roman hegemony. So the second beast tells, it gives you pictures of what this beast does. It gives image, breath to the first beast so that the image could speak. It forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands. Now this may think us, we think of microchips often when we think about this, or barcodes, there are big discussions around this. But in Revelation, we've already seen seals, and who had them? The church. The first people who got seals were the people of God. God put seals on the foreheads of his people. And so what you're seeing here is a terrible parody of the great good thing that God is trying to do. The beast is trying to deceive the world into it. And then it says they couldn't buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the number of the beast. And that number is 666. Now I promise I'm trying to rush through it because I want us to land somewhere very specific here. When we think about rich and poor, we think about an end of the world economic system where Christians will be cut out of buying and selling. Now that could happen. I, I don't know what the future's gonna hold, maybe. Maybe China might take over the world economy and Christians will no longer be able to buy and sell. Maybe, I don't know. I don't think that's what Revelation's talking about. Not being able to buy and sell, if you were a Christian reading this in Roman times, this was already your life. Remember, if you were part of a trade guild, if you were a builder, shoemaker, you were part of a guild. And the guilds regularly did their work in temples. And often they would begin their days by ascribing praise to the emperor. And so you'd go into the guild and you'd offer praise to Caesar. Thank you, Caesar, who's given us all of our bounty and protects the whole world. Thank you, yada, 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 yada. And then you'd go on. But what happens if you're a Christian and when they all go to worship Caesar, you say, you guys go ahead. I quietly think that Caesar is a great seven-headed beast that's destroying the world and this imperial cult is a beast from the land, which is blaspheming the great God of humanity. If you were a business person, how would that go down in your business? Would... Would you kind of move up the ranks as a cool, fun guy? No, Christians were already facing exclusion if they didn't participate in the cult. And that number 666, um, it's part of a system called gematria, 
where you take letters and you ascribe them numbers. So one of the ones that you can see here is count the numerical values of the letters in Nero's name. And in murdered his own mother, <laughs> that's a fun one, if you add them up, you will find the sum is the same. So if you add up the letters murdered his own mother, you'll also get the same number for Nero Caesar. Or graffiti in Pompeii says, I love her whose name is 545. So these numbers weren't supposed to be like hidden mysteries that we had to spend our life to solve. It was satire. You looked at it and you're like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. And so for this one, who's 666? Well, honestly, the most simple answer is if you take the letters for Nero Caesar or Neron Kaiser, you put them together, you get the letters for 666. So what's Revelation doing? Now, I'm not saying that the only Antichrist was Nero and that's it. What, what Revelation's trying to say is empires, emperors, systems that rule based on oppressing minorities, on killing and deceiving, those are actually systems of oppression from the, from the dragon. That empires that oppress people are systems from the pit of hell. And if we go along and love them, we are giving power to the beast. That's what it's been saying this whole time. It's, it's not that simple when early readers, or it's not that complicated. Early readers would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. So to sum up this passage, um, Greg, Craig Keister, yeah, so Revelation is saying the empire and its cults, they're false gods. Keister says this, the basis for parody in Revelation 13 is the idea that Rome's power to rule rests on its ability to conquer. This idea was featured in the art and the rhetoric that supported the imperial cult. John accepts the Roman emphasis on the centrality of conquest, so he accepts that violence was key to Rome's dominion. But where supporters of the empire saw conquest as the basis for legitimacy and invincibility, John sees it as the hallmark of its tyranny. He goes on to say, so what John does is he parodies the ruling power by picturing it as the savage beast. Emperors claim to have authority from gods, but revelation shows that their authority comes from Satan. The people in the vision stand in awe of the monster, but John's parody shows that such a response is absurd and that faithfulness to God entails resistance to imperial claims. Does that make sense? This is a very political, anti-empire bit of scripture that challenges the churches not to go along with Roman systems of oppression. Yeah? So... Thank you for bearing with me. I'm gonna wrap it up here. And I've been wrestling with how do we land this today? What empire are we fighting against today? What systems are we struggling against today? And man, there's so much we could talk about. Honestly, there's so much we could talk about. I could talk about the great empire of sin and the way sin holds dominion over our lives. I could talk about the empire of shame. If we wanna get more real, I could talk about the great empire of the way our goods are bought the reality that most of our clothes comes from poor, oppressed people in nations who don't receive living wages. Man, there's a lot there that we could talk about. But honestly, if I could have us sit with one thing, and this may get difficult, this may be hard for us to sit through, I cannot talk about empire without the core realization that we here in New Zealand are inheritance of an empire. Literally, a British empire a British empire that gained its power through the same way Rome did, military might and strength and the oppression of indigenous peoples for their financial gain. 
If you are Pakiha, if you are American, if you come from Germany, if you come from a Western colonial nation, you are the descendant and the benefactor of empires. And so this text is actually really alive for us. It's very real because empire is part of our world. If you don't believe me, look at Tauranga. I mean, just this city, we can see how empire has shaped our city. I mean, if you look at Tauranga, originally there's a huge block of, block of land, the, the, the Te Papa block of land. When missionaries first settled here in New Zealand, uh, they built local relationships with Māori, and Māori gave them this huge block of land. You can see it's from basically the tip of the coast, the peninsula, all the way up to about Gate Pa. Huge block of land. Māori gave that land to the missionaries so that missionaries would have a base of operation to help serve local Māori. It was given to serve our local communities. What happened, though, is that during the land wars, as the government and Māori clashed, local Māori here in Tauranga began to assist and send supplies to the Kingitangi movement in Waikato, who were facing the forces there. So to shut that down, the New Zealand army came here to, New to Tauranga and set up camp in church land and waged war against local Māori. So land that was supposed to be used for the benefit of Māori was now being used to kill them by the government, right? And after the land wars had finished, there was a land act that was passed called the... Ooh, what did, did, what did I have it? Oh, man, I didn't write it down. A land act was passed by which any Māori group, iwi, who had been seen as rebellion against the crown could have their lands confiscated immediately. No trial, no recourse, it was gone, and it was never coming back. Hamilton and Waikato iwi lost so much land there, and uh, that rule wasn't applied justly. Um, the government began applying that to forestry regions where no one lived. It began applying that rule to iwis who had never fought against the government. It became an excuse to start to take land. And missionaries began to face pressure from the government because the government kept looking at all this land and said, we got settlers for Tauranga, give us this land. And missionaries held out at first, but then the Land Act became more pervasive and the missionaries thought, you know what, we're gonna lose it anyway. And so they sold their land. Actually, they didn't sell it. They gave the land to the crown, freehold. And so everything that we see in Tauranga is shaped by empire. The roads of Tauranga, Cameron Road, is named after a general who won the Battle of Pukehina, well, after they lost the first time. And so Tauranga itself, we here are shaped by empire. We benefit from empire. When we go into the city and we think, hey, I'm going to have a coffee at this place, I'm going to walk down the road, we walk down lands that the empire has won for us. Now, I'm not saying it's simple and we should just give the land back. I'm not advocating for that at all but I'm saying that it is complicated. When we look at the story of Māori, um, in 1860, Māori owned 80% of the land across our country, right, 1860. At the end of the land wars in 1890, they owned 40% of the land after the government began confiscating. By 1940, Māori owned 8% of the land across this country. And now, today, in the last statistics in 2000, Māori own 4% of the land. In 100 years, so much land has been lost. And we cannot live without realizing that this is empire. Really, the same text that it's challenging us here with 
Laodicea was comfortable because they lived with the blessings of the empire and they were challenged strongly to come out of empire. And this is a hard word for us and I know it's not a fun thing to say, but if we're gonna read Revelation responsibly and if Revelation characterizes empire as systems that oppress people and win by force, Revelation says that those forces come from the devil and we need to resist them. And so Revelation would say to us, here today in Golden Sands 2019, we still have to get better at coming out of the empire. We have to recognize that empire is all around us and we need to find ways to become the radical kingdom of God and follow the lamb. Now, how do we come out of the empire? Look, there's no simple answers. I've got a few ideas. Um, the first one, there are simple things that we can do to help minimize our love for the British Empire and the benefits we still get for it. Um, one, engage biculturally. If you have not engaged in the bicultural journey, take a Tereo class. Go listen to local Māori and local iwi stories and tell you the stories of the land that you have come from. If you are an educator, engage in the bicultural process of education. If you are a nurse, learn what it means to nurse and love holistically in a bicultural context. It's not hard for us to engage biculturally and by doing that, we are moving away from the empire. And just little bits like there. Listening to non-Western voices when we think about scripture or faith. Most of Western voices are shaped by empires. Perhaps some of the best ways we can learn how to follow Jesus is to be listening to people who don't come from Western contexts because their lives aren't shaped by empire the same way that ours is. By ethically. Um, the Baptist World Alliance um, every year comes out with a fashion guide, which is really helpful. They go through all the different major clothing retailers and assess their supplies, their um, job conditions for their people. They assess the wages that are paid, and they will grade every single clothing supplier that you mostly will encounter from a rank from A to like F. Simple ways that we can engage with the empire is realizing, well, look, it's going to cost us a bit more but maybe we can buy and sell in a way that doesn't enable empire systems. Let's buy with companies who are actually minimizing harm and caring for the people who actually make the things that we use. Does that make sense? And finally, it's just trying to walk in the opposite spirit. Identifying with the least, identifying with the poor, the broken, the victims of empire, doing our best to recognize that as the church, we are called to identify there rather than at the seat of power. Does that make sense? Now, I know this is a hard word, and I know not everybody's gonna be on board, and I know we may get emails about this, and that's okay. And I know this is challenging, I, I do, I know it. This isn't the same uplifting message that it was last week. But, we cannot read this book. We cannot read about empire and not acknowledge the empire that we come from. If we do, we are not taking this text seriously. And as Christians and as the family of Golden Sands, all I can help us do is try to follow Jesus faithfully by following what people have written about him in his word. And today, that means reckoning with our place within the empire. So I want, I want us to finish, and I thought we could sing Tuhia as an appropriate way to kind of finish and wrap everything up at engaging with the multiculture and where we come from. Um, can we stand and pray and sing together? Look, I know this is challenging. Honestly, this was challenging for me. I wrestled so much this week as I tried to grapple with this text. And sometimes the Bible's hard. Sometimes its message is challenging. But for Laodicea, it brought life. 
And I believe for us, it can bring life too. The more we move away from empire and the more we move towards Jesus, the more faithful and the more life I think we will encounter as part of being part of his community. So let's pray together and then we'll sing.